Well, good morning. It's good to, good to be here again. My wife and I have really, uh, really enjoyed ourselves and just, uh, just the great fellowship and encouragement, meeting, meeting people. And certainly, if I haven't met you, my wife and I, we'd certainly love to, uh, <clears throat> to do that. Uh, Pastor uh, Nate's message last night um, uh, really resonated with me. And in the sovereignty of God, I made a little bit of a change um, in what we'd be looking at this morning. So I think in your book, it uh, goes Noah and then Jacob, and uh, we'll probably get to Noah tomorrow. Um, but I would like to speak to you uh, um, out of a personal experience. Um, I would like to speak to you out of part of my testimony, and uh, in light of what uh, uh, Pastor Nate had to say, uh, which I would echo 100% that uh, God works in mysterious ways, often through difficulty. Certainly in my life, it's, it's been through valley experiences that God has brought me to the point where I have to constantly uh, cling to Him. And, and that, is the, that is the case uh, in my life even right now. Uh, coming to camp, my wife and I have been praying that we would be a ministry, that we would be an encouragement to people, that, that, we, would, that we would give of ourselves. And yet, as my wife and I have come to camp, uh, we, we've had a very difficult last uh, two weeks in our life, and God has been doing a deep work. And I've struggled with even sharing um, about what's going on in our life, because we want to we, we minister to you. But after hearing uh, Nate last night, I trust as I share uh, these principles from Daniel 3 that I mentioned in my testimony, uh, that this will be a blessing, uh, an encouragement, and it will buoy you up. So if you would turn to Daniel chapter 3, uh, the, the uh, familiar passage, everybody knows Daniel uh, chapter 3, uh, so give me the three names of the, of the guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. And I used to love telling my kids and now my grandkids this story, and when I would get done, I would say, and it's Shadrach, Meshach, and now it's to bed we go, so let's go to bed. I shared uh, the first night, it seems like a long time ago now, about this mountaintop experience of trusting Christ out of a deep valley experience of being totally humiliated, totally broken uh, in my life, and having trusted Christ as Savior, and then marrying this girl that had an unbelievable testimony and witness in my life by saying no to me as far as dating and telling me because her relationship with Christ was so important. And then after having trusted Christ, actually go on a date with her and then eventually marry her. And, and so, so God really blessed. He blessed us with children. And, and I had a great paying job. And then along uh, came my son who was uh, diagnosed with leukemia and a bone marrow transplant. And through that valley experience, God did this deeper, deeper, deeper work in my life. And uh, my wife and I are extremely blessed. Uh, four boys, all in full-time ministry in one sort or another. Uh, we have one daughter that's right in the middle, and she loves the Lord and has served the Lord with her giftedness in various churches, our church and now uh, the church plant. So, so to the best of our uh, knowledge and what we can, uh, what we can observe, 
all five of our kids are loving God and serving God. I didn't share that my son Jake, who was diagnosed with leukemia when he was four, bone marrow transplant when he was five, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he had a reoccurrence of cancer, and it came back in the middle of his brainstem. And the, the, the doctors, the neurosurgeons in the Des Moines area in Iowa, uh, they, they didn't want to touch it because it was in the dead center of his brainstem. And, and in the sovereignty of God, uh, there was a surgeon at Mayo that had done a a brain surgery with the patient alive on the Today Show. And his name was Dr. Frederick Meyer. And through a whole set of crazy circumstances, somehow I got a phone number for that guy. And I called it. And I actually, uh, he answered the phone as he was eating supper in his house. He wanted to know how I got his phone number, and so I gave him a little bit of the description how I got. He said, well, what's your problem, and, or what's going on in your life? And I said, well, my, my son has this, and the neurosurgeons here don't even want to touch it because it's right in the center of his brainstem. And, and, uh, and uh, so he said, well, hold on a second. And the phone kind of, I thought he hung up on me, actually. And his nurse assistant or whoever it was, he had called her. She goes, well, I don't know what's going on in your life. Uh, or I don't know how you got his phone number. But he said, if you can be up to Mayo on Tuesday, he'll take, he'll take a look at your son. So we bring our son up there. And he's looking at it. And he's like, this is going to be very difficult. And so I said to him in the room with my son, Jake, right there. I think, was he 18 or 19? or What's that? 19 years of age, I said, well, what, what, do, you, what do you think? Uh, I mean, if you were his dad, what would you do? And he, he said, you know, I have a son named Jacob. I go, you do? I have a son named Jacob. And here's what he said. I would trust my hands more than I would trust that tumor. I think you should let me take a, take a go at it. And sure enough, we had to allow our son to make the decision, obviously. And certainly there were difficulties. And for two months, um, he had to learn to, to see again. His eyes, for numbers of weeks, uh, were cross-eyed. And he had to learn to, to walk again. And it was a valley experience. And it was like, Lord, we're begging you for our son's life. And Lord, we're out here, we're serving you. And uh, God did a work. Five children. God and uh, Deb and I are thankful for all of them. So my oldest son, Jake, you heard about. My next son, Josh, had a form of epilepsy and seizures. Medication mostly took care of that. And then our youngest son, Joel, uh, has a more severe form of epilepsy. And he's on some, uh, some rigid uh, medications to keep his, um, keep his seizures intact. And so the only reason I bring that up is not for an ounce of sympathy. We're, we're thanking God for his goodness in our life. But I want you to connect what Pastor Nate said last night with the reality on the ground. And that's that you can be serving the Lord, like you can be sold out to God. And, and you, you, could, you could see your kids wanting to live for the Lord and you could raise them. Uh, in, in, in the way that you feel like God would want you to raise them. And God, in his sovereign choice, allows things to come into our lives. The, the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? And the reason that I'm bringing that up is because my wife and I 
are in another one of those situations. And God is saying, how are you going to respond to that? And so when we came this week, there's no intention of sharing our personal story. We want uh, to minister. I trust this few moments will minister to you. So I'm going to be very transparent. Even though I don't know most of you, I feel like I'm amongst friends. So let me be transparent. When Jacob was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, my mom had come over and noticed that his left eye was protruding out a little bit from his right eye. We'd been around him so much, we didn't, we didn't see it. I was like, well, yeah, we looked at that. So we took him to the, to the uh, believing friend who was an eye doctor, and he said, yeah, his left eye is about a quarter inch out farther than his right eye, and uh, we should have that. His vision is fine, but we should have that checked. Next thing we know, next thing we know, next thing we know, by the next morning, a uh, neurologist tells us that he actually has a tumor that is eaten through the back of his eye socket, is filling his cavity, and pushing his eyeball out. And uh, we don't know what it is for sure. Haven't seen this very often, uh, but we'll, we'll try to figure it out. Well, a week goes by and two weeks go by, and they, can't, they, haven't, they haven't figured out what it is. They took a biopsy. They actually sent it to John Hopkins University. My job at the time, I was a general... Uh, sales manager of a Lincoln Mercury dealership, and uh, yes, a car dealer, so you can, you know, give, give us a hand, the car dealer kind of thing. <laughs> it was so funny, because one time at Sailorville, I taught the young adults class, and we had a missionary come in, and he wanted to speak to the young adults, so I said, okay, yeah, you could go ahead and take my class, or whatever, so I was sitting in the back. So he was using the car dealer as the illustration of sin, and we all know, you know, the, the tax collector car dealer guy. And I was sitting in the back. I didn't say anything. And uh, by the end of the service, he found out I was that car dealer guy that he was using for an illustration. And I said, it's good. It's good, brother. I was down. One of my jobs was to travel around the country and buy cars. And when I went to Kansas City, I would just drive. So on this particular morning, I drove. Drove to Kansas City. I'm in the middle of the auto auction all kinds of noise, all kinds of things. I bought a number of cars, and I get a page to go to the front desk. I go to the front desk. She said, over at the phone bank, that phone right there, uh, there's, a, there's an important phone call. So uh, it's my wife on the other end, and she tells me, Dave, I, I just got the phone call, and, and, and the neurologist um, has said that our son has this over the phone, Tells my wife while she's by herself, he's got this rare form of leukemia. He's got a 10% chance of living, and you need to come in right away, and we'll figure out a treatment option. Well, she's by herself. I'm down in Kansas City. I got this. And I'm going to tell you, this is going to be very transparent, I lost it. I remember people and noise. I don't think I hung up the phone. It was still back in the day where the phone is, you know, pay phone kind of thing. I, I was driving back. Uh, we were living in the Ankeny area. At least twice I had to pull over. I was hyperventilating. I could not. I think I was going to make it home. I had all these. I'm serving the Lord. I love the Lord. He saved me radically. And by the time I get home, my wife is composed, but she's broken as well. 
And I'm literally, when I walk in the door, I'm hyperventilating again. Like, I cannot breathe. I'm thinking I'm going to die. I, I just couldn't, couldn't stop. And so, literally, I was breathing into a brown paper bag. The pastor, who lived right down the street, Pastor Gary Butler, came up. And he prayed. And then he shared Daniel chapter 3. And he was talking about the trials of life. And he was talking about when life seems to be getting the best of you. When the pressure of life seems unbearable to you. When life doesn't seem fair and God doesn't seem to care. And this truth in Daniel chapter 3 is a truth that keeps on giving in my life, and I would like to share how it's giving this morning. Now, in Daniel chapter 3, it's one of the most well-known Bible studies. Let's make sure we understand this. In Daniel 1, we find that Daniel had three friends. They've been deported and exiled to Babylon. I think there's a map up here just to kind of get the idea. So, that, so they were taken out of Jerusalem. They were taken over to Babylon. It's modern-day Iraq and Iran, so you can kind of get, a, get an idea. Uh, this was Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion into Jerusalem, about 605 uh, B.C., and uh, God had prophesied that there was going to be a deportation of the Jews because they had done two things against him. They had failed, listen, to keep the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, the seven-year Sabbath, and the 50-year Sabbath. They weren't, they weren't listening to God and keeping a Sabbath. And number two, they were worshiping idols. God says, okay then, I'm, I'm going to have you, I'm going to allow you, take my hands off you to be deported. And so in Daniel chapter uh, 3, uh, so, so, you have, so you have in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the king orders the best and the brightest youth. Now listen to this because it's happening today. So I want you to get this. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, as he took the, he took the best and brightest young people, and he was grooming them, you can read it for yourself, in Babylon custom and culture, and he wanted them to be indoctrinated from and away from their Jewish ancestry and toward the Babylonian culture. He wanted to help them forget about where they had come from. He wanted to change their mindset. And that is what's happening in our world today to our young people. There's a group of people that are grabbing them and they're trying to indoctrinate them away from what we're teaching them and whip their minds into what they are saying. And it is satanic. It is happening. I mean, if you aren't involved in your kids' lives and you don't see that what, what's going on out there and, and you can say, well, then I'm just gonna, uh, I'm gonna do a holy huddle and pull my kids back here and I'm not gonna let them touch that culture that's gonna do that. I, I kind of get that, but at some point they're gonna have to walk into the world. You just have to know that Satan's been at this a long time. This isn't the first culture that he's, he's tried, to, tried to get after the teens. So he's getting after them. In Daniel 3, the king makes a, in chapter 3 and verse 1, the king makes a statue for himself. And literally, if you put it, and if you could show this, uh, this artist's rendition of his statue, the statue was 90 feet high by nine, by nine feet wide. 
Uh, the, if, you, if you've ever been to Cape Canaveral, it would be like a rocket on the pad. That's, about, that's how it would stand out. So we're, we're not talking a little thing that you would glue to your dash of your car. We're, we're talking about a statue that, 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 would, that would stand out. And of course, he's been like, get everybody to come and kiss the feet of the statue. And of course, uh, or, and if you don't, you're going into the burning fiery furnace. And it looks like in Scripture, all but three of them kissed the feet, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in verse 13 of of Daniel chapter 3, the king is uh, furious, and he he calls the men, and and let me read verse 15 of Daniel chapter 3. Now, if you are ready, when you hear this, so he's giving them another chance, hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, uh, the harmonica. No, it doesn't say that, but it could. The trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music. Fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That was the wrong thing for him to be saying. God was going to show him. Now I want you to notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they respond together in unison. I don't know if they all talk, but they all, according to Scripture, thought the same thing. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set it up. We're, we're not, we're not going to do it. We're not, we're not going to serve. We're not going to worship. It, basically, God is saying, you can work for someone, but you're going to serve God. Amen? That's what we're going to do. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 8, and here's the key to the victory, even when hard times come, that's why I think that you know, God is prodding me to, to, to speak this this morning, but you have to resolve before the hard time comes who your God is. Because look what it says about Daniel. Before any of this happened. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The, the whole... Um, the whole way to have victory in the heat of the battle is to have the victory before you get to the heat of the battle. It's to set down your stake. And if we read verses 19 through 23, you're going to see that they were bound and they were bound up and, and, these, and this kind of thing. And then what, what happens? Uh, it says in verse 23, first of all, and these three Shadrach, Meshach, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. We, we, we know the story. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound? It's the idea of being bound into the fire. They answered and said to him, a true king. He answered him, but I see four men. Can we give a, I mean, we say, I say amen. I say hallelujah. Can we give a hallelujah right there? The four men. Hallelujah. They're not alone. They are not alone. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not alone. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You are not alone. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of God's. No kidding. I think if you study that, uh, this is a 
pre-incarnate or pre-Bethlehem appearance of Christ himself. It's, it's very clear from Scripture. And I want, I, I want you to see, and, and, and then they were unbound. The only thing the fire did to these three guys is burn off the ropes that held their hands together. God like takes what somebody meant for evil. God, Genesis 50 and verse 20, meant it for good. So there are many truths that come out of this. But let me share you, with you just a couple. And, and you write them down and you take it to the bank. Number one, the world wants you to shut up. God wants you to stand up. The world's going to want us and does want us to shut up. But God wants us to stand up. Younger people, I know that most of them are out. Older people, when others want us to bow down or others are bowing down, God wants us to stand up. Standing up is easy at camp. Standing up is easy when nobody's asking you to bow down. But increasingly, the culture is coming at us and they're asking us to bow down. God's people are asked to swim against the world's culture and the current of the culture in every area imaginable. In the area of gender, in the area of marriage, in the area of materialism, worth ethic, parenting, schooling. These three yielded up their bodies rather than bow down their allegiance. Now, Nate gave, uh, used Romans 12.1. That was very impactful. Uh, I have Romans 12.1 from the Phillips translation. Now, you're not going to do deep Bible study from the, from the Phillips translation, but, but he wrote this uh, translation kind of in modern English so that he could teach it to his family and the people that were in his church, and, and he, he, he just wanted so So this is a very loose translation, but it captures the idea uh, of Romans 12.1 that I think Pastor Nate... So here's what the Phillips translation says. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God. In other words, what Nate was trying to say, no, what was it that, that, that should cause us to want to be a living sacrifice? Our eyes should be wide open to the mercies of God. I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated him, accepted by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. It meets all the demands and moves towards the goal of maturity. So, so this is what he's asking us. Scripture is very clear that what you bow down to, you're always going to be bound to. Uh, you know the little ditty, and it really makes sense, and I imply it in my life. A sin will take you farther than you want to go, uh, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you thought you could pay. It will become a master in your life. However, if you take a stand for Christ, you will never stand alone. Amen? That's the truth of the Scripture. There in the furnace is Christ. Did the three men see him? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. 
I'm going to say maybe not. Doesn't say that they saw him. Doesn't say that they were holding hands. Did they know Jesus was walking with them? Here's a verse that in recent weeks in Deb and I's life uh, has become very important, and I would, I would encourage you to, to, uh, to memorize it. Deuteronomy 31.8. I think it could be up here on the screen. Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's the Lord who goes before you. Praise God. So the world wants you to shut up. God wants you to stand up. Truth number two of two truths. Trust that God is sovereign. Write both of these words down in triumph and tragedy. He's a sovereign God in both of these. Pastor Dave was speaking last night and I was like, amen, preach it. This right here is the life-transforming truth that on that day where I could physically not breathe, I had known the Lord for seven years. I, I studied his word. I taught Sunday school class. I, I, was, I was like many of you serving God. And yet this thing came into my life that came out of the blue. This is what Gary Butler taught me as my world was spinning out of control. And so I want you to see the three levels of faith. I kind of mentioned them. You've you probably heard about them before, but I want you to put your eyes on them. And I want you to think about what God is saying to you in your circumstance right now. So, so I just put a couple of words to them, but it's, but it's really pretty simple. So three levels of faith. Number one, there's a resolve faith. It says in verse 16 and 17, right at the beginning, that God is able. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not, we're not going in, we're not, we're, we're not going to bow down because we know, number one, our God is able. That's the first level of faith coming to, coming to the conclusion that you know that God is just able to do whatever God can do. And, and I would assume most of you would not argue with God is able to do whatever God uh, wants to do. They were completely trusting in God's ability to deliver. Answer me this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What? No. And then we say that and we sing that and then we walk in the real world out here and God's going to say, okay, now I'm asking you to not say it, not just sing it. I want you to believe it. Uh, for my brother, Nate, there's a Buddhist saying from Buddha. And here's the saying. He is able who thinks he is able. So you remember Pastor Nate saying in the Buddhist system, it's, it's about you getting better, you doing it, you, you doing it. So this is the, and I would, say, I would say all of the letters in that sentence are correct. They just have one word they need to make into a capital letter. Let's see it in a different way. He is able who thinks he is able. Amen. He's able. He is able. So he's able, number one. Second level of faith, uh, this, uh, uh, this idea of a robust faith. He will deliver. 
We believers should not walk around with our daubers down and, and always depressed and always broken and never being able to get over the hump. We should have an optimistic perspective about God's ability to do something and, and God wants us to pray that he will do something. He will deliver us. The second level of faith, here's the problem, is where most of us stop. And because we think, well, God will. He's going to do this. In, under adversity, our faith starts floundering because he doesn't always step in to do it. Now, we would never say we're part of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which teaches this is your best, best life now, and if you have enough faith, then you'll be rich. If you have enough faith, the cancer will go away. If you have enough faith, your, your wayward husband will all of a sudden become a knight in shining armor, and if you just have enough faith... We practice a touch of that. We, we live under the false illusion that God promised when we gave our life to Christ, our best life now. If you never come to know Christ, then that is absolutely true. This is your best life now. It's not going to get better. We, we preach God has a wonderful plan for your life. You should come down front, give your life to Christ. Everything will be better. No, my sins will go away. And actually, if we're going to be dead honest here, I mean, by personal experience, you can do that. Actually, my, wife's, my life's going to get a little more difficult because the current's going this way, and I was going with the current, and going with the current's a lot easier than going against the current, Amen. So the second level of faith is not only is he able, but I believe in my heart that he will. And God wants us to be there. But there's a third level of faith, as, as you probably know. I just use the word resolute faith. It's an if-not faith. They didn't doubt God's ability, but neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego presume to know God's will. Uh, did you, have you come to the realization yet that God's plan might not be what you desire? So two definitions of faith that stuck with me. Faith means trusting God regardless of feelings in us. I think it can be up here on the screen if you'd put that up. Faith means trusting God regardless of the feelings in us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. It means taking God and saying, he's able, he will. If he doesn't, he's still my God. Here's a second one. And here's where God is telling my wife and I to be today. Faith is not primarily receiving from God what you want. It's accepting from God what he gives It's a one thing to have a faith to escape whatever it is you're in, whatever's going on. It's another to have a faith to endure. Now, I would tell you personally, and when I, when I speak to young people, I would say, you know, if you, if, you, if you settle this in your mind, God is able, God is, he, he can, and, 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 and in many cases he will, but if he doesn't, he's still my God. If you make this decision today in your life, then you're going to better be equipped to handle what comes in life. One big decision, and I speak to our teens, 
One big decision for Christ will save you from a hundred smaller ones day in and day out. Bow your heart, your mind, and your soul to Jesus, and you're not so easily going to bow it to somebody else. They were willing to burn rather than to bow. And unless we come to the place in our Christian maturity where we grasp the truth that God is sovereign in triumph and tragedy, our faith will always be conditional and it's not going to really be called faith. Trusting Christ completely is the most freeing experience in life. The only thing the fire is going to burn is that which bound the three men. I told you personally, just have a couple of moments to wrap this up. I told you personally that there was a time in that whole thing with our son Jake where we went to this Methodist chapel and these verses came to both of us individually, separated apart, not talking to each other, and we both put our stake down that, that God is willing, uh, that, that, that we think God will, we, and we were just told that he wasn't going to, but even if it doesn't happen, he's still our God. And you remember me saying, uh, this is the truth that keeps on giving? Two months ago, our pastoral staff thought it would be fun to preach on a passage that transformed our life. So when it was my turn, I preached on this passage, May 28th. May 28th, 8th eight weeks ago or so. And I preached about how this became real in my life through our kids. And I showed a picture of a lady in our church, a husband, so if you could pull up the next picture there. See those two boys right there? And I used them as an example. That's Sean and AJ. They have a disease that's called, I always mispronounce this, Sanfilippo type B. It's terminal. There's no current treatment. And from the time they get to be two or three, they start reverting back. And uh, one boy's five, the other boy's eight. They're in our church. And uh, they, they don't basically make it till they're a teenager. And they are reverting backwards, both of them, at a pretty quick pace. And as I was uh, talking to Tracy, the mom, if you could show the next picture, Mom, Tracy knows Christ. Husband Jason doesn't know Christ as our family's trying to minister to them. She brings him to church by herself um, uh, as we're ministering. And she heard me uh, talk about Daniel 3 a, a time back. Uh, she sent me a picture of what she has on her mantle. So if you go to the next picture, please. And go to the next one because it'll show it even a little bit better, I think. She has on her mantle, and if not, he's still good. I was really moved by that. And I was like, and so our church family gathered, gathered around them. So the question is, does your faith have an if not clause? Now again, I'm, I'm going to be very transparent here. Uh, certainly wasn't planning on this. But if you go to the next picture, this is a picture of my son's four girls my son pastors in Messina, Iowa. Uh, the two oldest, uh, Marie and Elaine, or Marie's at the top right, Elaine's right in front of my wife, Deb, 
And then the two adopted girls are Louisa and Audrey. Elaine, uh, from the time she was young, has had seizures. She's had seizures. And we have two of our kids, and I've told Elaine at different times, I think your mom, grandma, and grandpa passed down some genetics, so a couple of our kids have seizures. She's had seizures. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, she started having seizures and seizures. If you go to the next picture, that's Elaine. Seizures. And about 10 days ago, maybe two weeks ago, four days, and they couldn't get her to stop seizing. And my son shared with Deb and I that she has... I don't want to give you the generic name because you would look it up. You won't, you won't read anything good. I can't even pronounce the long name. She has a genetic disorder that normal symptoms start when you're one or two. Hers did. Progresses. Turns into liver disease. Seizures uncontrollable. And the average lifespan, no cure, is 10 years old. Her liver function is less than 25%. Her kidneys aren't far behind. The treatment is supportive and reactive. There's no known cure. I said this truth about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's able. He will. And if not, he's still our God. And I want you to see, not certainly not, to feel sorry for us by any means. There was no plan to even share this. But I want you to see that as you live for the Lord, God is going to constantly ask you to trust Him at the deepest level of your being with the most precious things in your life And give them to him and say, God, you are good. You are good. God is once again asking Deb and I to have a faith that climbs all the way to the top that says, if not, you're still my God. And, you know, I don't know what anyone here is going through. I know there's been loss, talk to some, and there's difficulties, there's health, there's wayward children, there's children that aren't living for the Lord. 
God is asking you, I think, to get alone and just say, Lord, how, how deep is my faith in you? Like, could you, how would I respond if you took the most precious thing in my life? Would he still be your God? Would he? Now, to a degree, you're probably not going to totally know until you get to that spot. But I can tell you, if you put your stake down right now, and you say, God, I've always thought you were able. I've trusted you to be able to do it. But Lord, if I am not there, where you're an if not God to me, then I'm asking you to put it deep down in my heart. I want you to be an if not God uh, to me. Let me pray. God, I believe who you say you are. You are the sovereign creator, God. Certainly, as Pastor Nate was speaking last night, you work in mysterious ways, often in opposite ways that we would ever want you to work. And yet, Lord, you're a sovereign God. What can we do other than to bow under your sovereign, loving hand? Lord, I trust you. We trust you. Lord, you would know in each individual life what is the situation that you are asking each individual here, whether it's a health thing, whether it's a spiritual thing, whether it's a job thing, whether it's a financial thing, whether it's a relationship thing, whether it's a sin thing. Lord, I know where you're trying to move all of us and me constantly and bringing this back up. Lord, we believe as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, that you're able, you've, you've proven that in my life. And as Pastor Nate said, you, you don't mean anybody any harm, uh, that you're, you're more than willing. But the creation bows before the Creator. And we thank you for your goodness. And then, Lord, I can't help but think of the pain of this little girl that I love so much. I can't imagine to think of your emotions when you gave up your son to an unwilling, disobedient people. I know that you've entered into the emotions of what many are going through in life. My son Josh and Melody. So I know that you understand. I know that you care. You're a great God. Thank you for your goodness. In Christ's precious name, amen.